I'm glad to see all of you. Uh, outlines are there on the table in front of you. And we are in chapter 18. I believe the outline says uh, the baby is soon to come, the baby of promise. And so we're, we're going to be picking up right where we left off last week. And so let's bow for prayer and we'll get started. Hey, Father, thank you for the, the beauty of this day and the joy of fellowship. We just enjoy talking with each other around the table. That's really something we look forward to every week. And sometimes we sit with the same folks every week. Sometimes we move around and talk to new folks. But whatever it may be, it's a, it's a pleasure and a joy to fellowship with one another. So thank you. Thank you for the delicious food. Uh, we pray you'll use it to strengthen and nourish our bodies. Now as we study Genesis, once again, I pray that you will speak to us from your word. Pray that when we leave today, we'll all be saying it's been good to be in the house of the Lord, and that we'll have some things we can take with us that will help us, challenge us, and encourage us as we seek to live for you the rest of this day. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Well, we get to chapter 18, and the morning chores are done. Everyone's resting in the heat of the day. Abraham looks up, and he sees three men right there in front of him, and he's very surprised because he didn't see them coming. But when we find out who they are, then we assume they probably didn't walk anyway. I mean, they just appeared, and they're right there. And he hadn't seen them, but Middle Eastern hospitality kicks in. Abraham looks at them, and though he doesn't yet know who they are, he seems to recognize that they are important men. And so uh, they're men of stature. But it doesn't matter. Middle Eastern hospitality is uh, was and is very, very important. And so... Um, Abraham bows in respect, asks the men to stay for a while, and uh, he's going to wash their feet and feed them. They agree to stay. Abraham springs into action as much as a 100-year-old can spring, and uh, he turns the dinner into a banquet, and he cooks a calf and a lot of bread. In fact, you know that we talked about this last week, the translation of that amount of bread is 36 pounds. That is a lot of bread. I'm going to assume they had a few leftovers, but he turns it into a banquet, and as they eat, Abraham respectfully stands nearby, satisfied that he has done well by these travelers. So let's read about it. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up, saw the three men standing nearby, and when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may walk, all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sayas. That's, that's what turns into 36 pounds. Get three sayas of the finest flour, knead it, bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd, selected a choice tender calf, gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds, some good yogurt and milk and the, and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. And while they ate, he stood nearby under a tree. So he's pretty satisfied at this point. Then the question, the men speak. Where's your wife Sarah, they asked. There in the tent, he said. 
Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now that's not news. He's known that, except that this time there's a date attached. Before, it has been, you're going to have a child through whom I will uh, raise a nation, you'll possess a land, and the whole world will be blessed through the seed of this child. But he's never had a date attached to it. Now there's a date, and it's going to happen within this next year. So uh, Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old. We know that. We've talked about that. And Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? She knew the promise. What does this indicate? Sarah had given up. Sarah had given up. It's not going to happen. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Well... Uh, is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. Now, there's no more elaboration on that. That just lays out there right there. Uh, so there was no chastisement of Sarah except for the fact that it's revealed that she lied, that she laughed. And she said she didn't, but the Lord said, yes, you did. So that ends the conversation. When the Lord says, yes, you did, that's the end of the conversation. <laughs> nothing else uh, nothing else can be said. Now, the men reveal their, the, the purpose of their visit. And we know that one of the three is Yahweh himself, the Lord himself. And this is the only place before the incarnation, that is before Christ comes, God in the flesh, this is the only time that the Lord eats a meal with humans present until Jesus comes. Only time in Scripture. So there it is right there. Now, what, what an honor uh, for Abraham, though he doesn't yet know who this is. Only that there's something about him that's significant. Uh, God has come to dinner. And that's, that's a big deal. So, where's Sarah? They asked, they knew. They want Abraham to verbalize it. She's in the tent. So she's listening. They know she's listening. This time next year, you're going to have a son. Now, Sarah's eavesdropping. She laughs, an expression of doubt for her. And the Lord asks, why, you lie? why did you laugh? And she lied about it and said she didn't do it. Now, here's the key. Look at verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's a good question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No, it isn't. And so they're going to find out very soon because the child is, is going to come. So there's nothing too old, uh, too hard for the Lord. And so here we go again. How many times is this time number five that God has said to Abraham, you're going to have a child. I'm going to keep my promise. If I remember right, I think this is the fifth time. God said, but the first time was a date. So it's coming, the baby's coming, and it's going to be soon. Somewhere between now and a year from now, you're going to have this baby. So we go to verses 16 through 33, and we see judgment and grace. So there's something else happens here. Um, 
something very significant. Now, we'll read it in a minute. Having just dined with God, Abraham escorts his guests out of camp. We're about to see that. From their vantage point, they can see a long way. They're on high ground. They can see all the way to the Dead Sea. Uh, they can see nearby to the water the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God asks himself a question, and then he answers it. Shall I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? And God answers his own question, yes, I will. So we're going to find out why in just a moment. But let's read, beginning with verse 16. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So we're going to stop right there for a minute. Why tell Abraham about what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah? Now, you've read the Bible. I bet every person in here has read it. You know what's about to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know the story. Abraham doesn't know yet. But we know what's about to happen. So God is conversing. Who's God talking to? Who do you think he's talking to? He's talking to the Trinity? Who's he verbalizing this question to? Shall I tell Abraham or shall I not tell him? Fascinating thought. Who's God talking to? Well, he tells He said, I'm going to tell him. Abraham's, uh, and he tells him because of Abraham's responsibility. Abraham is to be a channel of blessing to the world. And as a friend of God, he needs to know his master's intent. And this is his neighborhood. All this land is his neighborhood. The land that's to be theirs. And the home of Lot, his nephew. So God is going to tell Abraham. Also, and this is important for us to remember... Abraham is responsible to teach righteousness and justice to his offspring. So Sodom and Gomorrah provide a stark contrast to the way of life that is supposed to be lived. And if you're not totally familiar with the story, you're going to find out in just a minute, and some of you are going to blush. That's, it's unbelievable. Well, no, it isn't unbelievable, but it's, it's amazing. Now, the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah will be a teaching lesson for Abraham's descendants. Here is what happens to those who reject God. And there's still an example. May I take you momentarily to 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 4. Jot this down, or you can turn with me. 2 Peter chapter 4. Here's what Peter writes. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, 
if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. That's interesting to know. We'll elaborate on that in a minute. If this is so, if all of this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. So all three of those examples tell us God knows how to protect the righteous and he knows how to punish the ungodly. And we certainly see that unfold before us here in, in, uh, in Genesis 18 and 19. So, Sodom's condition, the depth of their sin, is appalling. It is focused on the sexual. Also, they are involved in the injustice of oppression. And the Hebrew word for outcry here, where he says, I hear the outcry that goes up from Sodom and Gomorrah, is a word used to describe the cries of the oppressed and the brutalized. So God says, I'm hearing the cries of the oppressed and the brutalized in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they are terrible cities in every way. In verse 20 and 21, God says, I'm going to make a personal investigation to see what he already knows. God already knows. But he's going to go and make a personal investigation who is he going to use to make this personal investigation? The two angels who are with him, as we are about to see. So, in chapter 19, the two angels will show up on a fact-finding mission, justice-pronouncing mission, and that's what's going to happen. So, we come to verse 22, and God has said, here's what's going to happen. Now, what does Abraham do? Look at verse 22. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. So the angels are going, they're on their way to Sodom, the Lord remains, he's with Abraham, they're standing there, Yahweh and Abraham. Then Abraham approached him, now he, he, he knows who he is by now, and he asked this question, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He knows Lot lives there. But also we're seeing the compassionate heart of Abraham. Abraham's thinking, yeah, Lot's there. I don't want him to die and his family. But there are other righteous people in Sodom, I'm sure. Are there? We'll find out in a minute. There are other righteous people there and I don't want them to die. So he asked God, will you sweep everybody away together? What, what, what if... What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Would you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of, of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. Abraham is bold, isn't he? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth do 
driver. Okay, so let, let's let's think about that. He's pretty bold. He's pretty passionate, and I think he's filled with compassion. This is not a charade. This is not a game on Abraham's part. He's really serious. He's praying not just for Lot, but for others also. And his confidence is that God will grant his request. That's why he's so bold. He's confident that God's going to honor his request. And God is righteous and God is just. Now, Abraham is in error in assuming that the righteous should not suffer. Hello? We know that, don't we? Abraham is in error for assuming that the righteous should not suffer. Not an uncommon viewpoint in his day. They, we, do suffer. The righteous do suffer. You don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever experienced suffering? Of course you have. All kinds of suffering, but you've experienced it. But we appreciate the bold courage of Abraham and the compassionate heart that he had in his bold approach to God. So, Abraham probes. This is kind of an exploration on the part of Abraham. You, you notice the what ifs. What if? I'm really amazed at God's infinite patience. Uh, it's almost a little bit like a wrestling match here in some, to some degree. Remember when Jacob wrestled with the, with the angel? It's almost like in Genesis 32. A little bit of, it seems like a little bit of a tussle here, but there's no tussle on God's part. So Abraham gets bolder, and he keeps asking, and he keeps asking until he gets down to 10. Let me, let me go ahead and read that. The Lord said, verse 26, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now, do you think the Lord already knew? There, there, are, not, there are not 50 people there who are righteous. So Abraham's standing there and think, okay, that went, that went well. So let's try this. Now, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? So he's down to 45 now. If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. The Lord says. Once again, he spoke to him. So Abraham's, well, that worked out well. I'm still standing here and it's okay, let's go. What if only 40 are found there? The Lord says, very patient, isn't he? For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? So I think Abraham is he's thinking through this, and I think he's also very well aware of the reputation of Sodom and Gomorrah. So as he's thinking, he's thinking, you know, there probably aren't 40. There probably aren't 30. So he continues in the process, and he says... If only 30 can be found, he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. 
Then he said, may the Lord not be angry. Verse 32, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. That's the end of, of Abraham's requests. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home, not knowing what's going to happen. Why did Abraham stop at ten? I, I don't I don't know why he didn't go down to five, why he didn't go down to one. Lot. Maybe looking at the Lord, he knew, uh, that's it. I better not go any further. I, I don't know. But he stops at ten. Maybe hoping in his heart there are ten. And maybe God won't do it. Maybe God won't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So, uh, God ended up destroying the cities. And he saved the only righteous man who was there. Lot and his wife and their two daughters. Yahweh departs, shows mercy on the one, the righteous man. All of God's actions are just. He will always do what is right. God hears the cries of humanity. Judgment's coming. And that thought is very offensive in our culture. Very offensive. Judgment. Don't you talk about that. You're going to be very unpopular in the neighborhood or at work or wherever. Jesus did what no one else could do. He died for our sin so that you and I don't have to live under the penalty of death. Now, I was hoping we would get to chapter 19, and we have. So, there's the lead up. Two angels are on their way. Didn't take them long. They probably went instantly from where they were to, to Sodom. God has said, if I find ten, I won't destroy the city. Abraham goes back for the evening, the sun's setting, it's getting dark, and he's waiting to see what will happen. Don't know how well he rested that night, but that's not really part of the story, because now we shift. So look at chapter 19. This is an, an incredible chapter. So verse 1. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening. Now look at this. And Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them, bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet, spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house and he prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate without yeast so that they could cook quickly. Now let's stop there. Where are we? The gates of the city of Sodom. What did the gates of a city in the ancient Middle East, what did they represent? The power, the, the seat of power, city hall, the capital, whatever you want to call it. I would say city hall would be most representative. That's the seat of power, the city hall. The elders of the city, the significant leaders of the city, would sit at these gates as important leaders and make decisions and judge between disputes that people have. They're the decision makers for the city. So knowing that, don't miss the meaning. Does something grab your attention? In chapter 13, Lot 
Remember, Abraham said, you take the land, whichever you want. Lot took the, the lush land, left the rest to Abraham. And where did it say? Lot moved outside the city of Sodom. So he goes near, but not in to Sodom to live. We come to chapter 14, and Lot has moved into the city of Sodom. We now come to chapter 19, and he's sitting at the city gate. You see the progression? He's now a prominent citizen of Sodom. He is described as a righteous man. We're saying, wow, we balance that. He's described as a righteous man. He's living in a dark place. And I have to think through this. The Bible doesn't tell you everything you might want to know, but it tells you everything you need to know. But as I think about it, what's going on here? Remember 2 Peter. If you don't have 2 Peter, you don't think very highly of what? You read 2 Peter that I read a few moments ago, or read again, and you say, okay, Lot was a righteous man, and his soul was being torn apart by the sin that he saw inside of him. As you project ahead to the rest of the story, upon whom did the greatest toll fall in their living in the city of Sodom? You think? On his family. It's on his family. Because we're going to get in a few moments to a verse where his two future son-in-laws won't even listen to him and go with him. And they're right in the heart of, of the sin that goes on in Sodom. He manages to get his wife to go because the angels grab her by the arm and jerk her out of town along with him. And the two girls are following behind. But what happens with Lot's wife? Her heart is so attached to Sodom that she looks back and turns to a pillar of salt. We'll get there momentarily. I think the greater toll for where they lived and what they were experiencing fell on his family. Now, when the angels get there, Lot practices Middle Eastern hospitality, just as we saw Abraham do. He does not know that these men are angels. He only knows that they look important. They seem important. But regardless of their importance... He is obligated to treat them with hospitality. That's just Middle Eastern law and practice and custom. So he bows, offers to wash their feet, and give them a bed in his own house that night. And that would also mean, obviously, feeding them. They refuse. And Lot is shocked. Why is he shocked? Because the laws of Middle Eastern hospitality not only pertain to the offerer, but to the receiver. And if hospitality was offered, your response is to be, yes, I will come and eat with you and spend the night with you. So when they said no, Lot is shocked. But also, he's thinking in his mind, I know where I live. And I know if these guys try to spend the night here in the city square in Lot, it's not in, in, in Sodom, it's not going to go well. And so, so Lot is fearful, for he has now become responsible for these two men. By the laws of Middle Eastern hospitality, he's become responsible for them. And he's saying, you must, you must come with me and stay at my house. In fact, 
the Hebrew words used in the text here indicate that Lot may have become physical, meaning he may have grabbed the angels by their arms and pulled them along in order to get them to come into the house with him. And so the scripture says that at his insistence, they went with him to stay in his home. And they got inside the house and he fed them well and he gave them red carpet treatment. Now is where things really begin to unfold. So we've got just enough time to look at verses 4 through 9. Before they had gone to bed, look at the text, because Moses chooses his words very carefully as the author of Genesis. All the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. Do you grasp that? Every male adult in town has gathered at Lot's house. The word spread and they gathered at Lot's house. They called a lot. Where are the men who came to, came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. There you go. If you're going to blush, this is the time. Their intent is as clear as it can be. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Now, I'll repeat that again. No, my friends. He knows them. And they know him. No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Now, the next part to us looks absolutely stunningly unbelievable. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. Dads who have daughters, can you imagine ever even thinking such a thing, much less saying it and making such an offer? But don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow, meaning Lot, came here as a foreigner and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. Pretty sordid tale, is it not? Almost defies belief. The sins of the sin of Sodom is dark indeed. The sin of homosexuality and utter utter perversion. This is an attempted rape. You can't look at it any other way. It is the very depths of spiritual of sexual violence. Now, let me leave a couple of thoughts with you, and then we've got to stop. We'll pick it up there next week. The homosexual and bisexual men, and they're they're there. Homosexual and bi, how do we know they're bisexual men there? Because two of them are engaged to marry Lot's daughters. It's the whole town is there. They aren't in the house. We're going to find out in a minute. They're not in the house with Lot. They're outside. And so these men have all gathered and they are eagerly participating in the communal rape of two visiting men. That's their intent. Moses carefully chooses his words. All of the men, both young and old, from all over town are here. This is extraordinary. 
Lot's home is surrounded by men of every age from all parts of town howling for perverted satisfaction. Now, the picture we have of Lot right now is really distressing. Really distressing. So, I want to elaborate on that next week. That's where we're going to pick up with Lot. We're going to go back to 2 Peter because we've got to. I mean, if we leave right here with Lot, I'm thinking he is one of the vilest men I've ever heard of. But we're going to get two pictures of Lot when we go back to 2 Peter next week. We're going to find out what Lot's hope was in standing out there and saying, let me bring my girls out to you. He said that, and I can't even imagine, but there was a hope in his heart that something would happen as a result of his offer. So we're going to find out what that hope is next week. And we're going to see the rest of the story, which you know ends up with the destruction and the annihilation of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the rescue of Lot, his wife, and two daughters, only to have his wife turn around to where her heart really was, and that was in Sodom. And it's a sobering story. And I may elaborate on some modern interpretation of this story because there are lots of modern interpretations today. Uh, you tell me what the text says. And then when I tell you some modern interpretations of it next week, you tell me how in the world could anybody think that. So that, that's, that's where we'll start. So what's next week? 29th? Yep. Alright, I'm writing down 829. That's where we'll be next week. Thank you for being here. And uh, we'll get to some more pleasant subjects as we move along. This was pretty tough. But what it's we must know it. We must know what it says. So let's pray. Father, thank you. I pray that as we leave here today, we'll uh, go in the power of the Holy Spirit, that our lives will bring joy to you, and that we will be a reflection of the love of Christ as we interact with family and friends, neighbors, the rest of this day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. God bless you. See you next time.